this week on the Digital Dust Podcast. We can show him as like a sad boy who wasn't very nice to his wife sometimes and like ate a bit too much in enough of a way where the audience can still like think Elvis is great. Hello and welcome back to Digital Dust. I'm Katie. I'm Robin. I'm Liz. And I'm Lawrence. And I'm so excited to be with you guys. Uh, some really upsetting news, I understand, is that your old uh, co-host Patrick, well, he got hit by a couple buses. And then uh, he was somehow still alive on the side of the road. And then um, a badger came up. And the badger just, like, just, like, dove right in and started eating his guts. And then, like, you know... By the time he got to the hospital, there's no way to save him anymore, and he just so I'm the replacement, Lawrence. So I'm really excited to be here. It's an incredible the voice. summer intern. Holy! This is the first time we've ever even heard that Patrick was dead. I had no idea. I know it's yeah, hey, you know what? They the the studio wanted to make it a surprise for us, so they like uh, we just wanted it to be sort of like the improv first episode, uh, first time reactions on screen to get the uh, the, the views and the well, it's not a view necessarily, it's a podcast, but you know what I'm trying to say. I think we do. I don't know where this came from. <laughs> that oh voice was so incredible. Like I was, I literally wasn't listening to a word you were saying. It was just yeah, the sound I was pretty voice. distracted. Yeah. That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> wow. Hey, I'm back. I'm not dead. <laughs> That's good. That's pretty good. <laughs> Patrick wasn't actually hit by a bus, for those No, I wasn't. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Was He's not. fine. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but, yeah, this is season three. Holy cow. We're back a third time. This is awesome. We didn't even think cool. that season three would be a thing, so when we no, started this. Absolutely not, right? So it's super cool. It's so awesome. Oh, my God. Yeah, but okay, so today, <laughs> what are we talking about? Uh, it's kind of a weird one. Not a weird one. No, it's all good. It's, a, it's our trendy topic, right? Yeah, yeah, Robin, you had a great idea. The new movie Elvis. Is it called Elvis? Or is it just about yeah, Elvis? Like, I you know how they often like, call it. it a song that they've done? It's about Elvis, and it's called Elvis. Great, yeah. okay, cool. So Elvis just came out, and uh, that got us thinking about biopics and... Obviously, their connection to history and all that sort of stuff. And and yeah, and so Liz did the very kind gesture of sacrificing possible safety <laughs> going into a movie theater to watch this movie for us. So Liz, you've seen it. I've seen and... it. It was the first time I've ever actually gone to the movies by myself, and I actually quite enjoyed it. It was nice. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Nice. That's awesome. So That's cool. It was good. It was me and like a bunch of middle-aged women. So Incredible. <laughs> yeah. Like, that is way too yeah, accurate that's about right <laughs> but no it was really good it. uh Baz Luhrmann is one of my favorite directors like huge Moulin Rouge fan I loved what he did with um Romeo and Juliet as well so uh I was I wanted to see this movie anyway and I was very happy that I did some criticisms some things that they left out so I'm very excited to talk about that that's awesome. Because I recently had to research a little bit about Elvis and like, man, what a life, especially the end of his life. It is very sad. So we'll get into that. But that's cool. Yeah, it was that's fun. That's great. And then and then, yeah, and then the, the uh, three of us, we sort of obviously have seen some biopics over the years. And so we're bringing some of that knowledge in and uh, some of our, our examples. But I, I really wanted to start things off 
with a uh, uh, wonderful YouTuber that I listen to quite often or watch. And so he doesn't need the plug, obviously, but his, but his name is also Patrick. His name is Patrick H. Willems. He's a phenomenal YouTuber and he talks a lot about sort of cinema and filmmaking and, and like all levels of, of criticism and analysis, whether it's direction, cinematography, editing, like color grading, like literally so many different things he talks about. And one of the things he, when Behemoth Rhapsody came out, he made a video about musician biopics in particular and the the formulas that they sort of stick to and and all that sort of stuff and so he he has some i, I think anyway some pretty interesting points and some things that I, I think might help sort of focus what we want to talk about and and uh, expand on and so uh, i think I'll, i'm just gonna sort of take it away with that for a, a few minutes and and then we can chat for a bit so he gives a a, a brief history of the biopic where he talks about some of the original ones of being around since the beginning of cinema, uh, Babe Ruth, Beethoven, Columbus, Joan of Arc has one as well. So they've been around for a very, very long time. But the subgenre of musician biopics, he says, really takes off around 1972 with the, the movie uh, Lady Sings to Blues by, about uh, Billie Holiday. And then 1978, which is the Buddy Holly story, which is about Buddy Holly, of course. And so that's kind of when the genre took off. And the idea is that, like, since these sort of original, now kind of classic movies, I suppose, the biopic musician genre has sort of boomed <laughs> into, like, 20 movies or something like that. All of which, or at least most of which, have a very similar formula. Uh, and I, so I have, I have the formula that he sort of lays out, and I'd love to see how this compares to Elvis. So, so I'm going to kind of go through each one. And I'd love to see it because, like, if you're thinking about Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man, uh, uh, I think Ray is another one. Even Straight Outta Compton, uh, a lot of them have these sorts of tropes really built into them. So the first part is that the movie begins late in the subject's career, right before they go on stage for an iconic performance. Did that happen in this movie? Pretty much. It started with what's interesting about Elvis is that. It's it's kind of told to you by Colonel Tom Parker, who was his manager. He's a cool. very weird guy. So it kind yeah. of starts with like basically kind of yeah, like Elvis's death and like he's and Colonel Tom Parker is like an old man in the hospital. And he's and what's really interesting is he addresses the audience as you. He says you. Like mm. you might think that the drugs killed Elvis or, you know, the fame killed Elvis, but what I'm here to tell you is that love killed Elvis, Elvis, specifically his love for his, his fans. Um, and so then he goes, yeah, he's, and he's like, I built Elvis, of course. So yeah, you go into the height of his careers in like the late fifties, right before he cool. goes off to the military and everyone's like swooning. And then he takes it all the way back to the beginning. But yeah. Damn. All right. So like one out of one so far. Yeah. This is great. All right. Perfect record. Okay, next up we have it jumps back to childhood or earlier in the person's life where they had some sort of tragedy, either like a sibling dies, a parent abandons them, like some sort of like sad sort of like aw kind of moment with the character. Same Always thing. Always the tortured artist. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, great. And if, and if you're following along with something like Bohemian Rhapsody, same sort of thing. They start with the beginning right before Live Aid and then it goes back to, to Freddy before he even met the band and that sort of thing. Rocket Man, same sort of vibe where he starts off the movie walking into rehab that comes like right before the end of the movie. And then he goes back to childhood talking about how his mother is a B word, <laughs> given the song <laughs> that, that is played oh. in that moment. In any case, so, okay, so that's great. Two for two. 
the next one that he talks about is that uh, after that, we then see the character older with their sort of moment of discovery, he calls it, where they sort of sing or play their instrument in front of strangers who are blown away by their performance and talent. Yeah. They're like first like, hey, listen to me, do my thing. And Elvis was like bang on with that. And what's really mm. interesting is because I think Baz Luhrmann did a really good job of kind of like helping a modern under audience understand how like someone watching Elvis like in the 50s for the first time would feel like there's that first That's scene cool. that you see a lot in the trailers where like he goes on he got got the greasy hair he's like still pretty young and he like takes a breath and then he just like sings and all the women just start like screaming but <laughs> not from a place of like woo we love him it was almost like they couldn't control their screams they were just kind of like oh this is just because he's like gyrating right elvis the pelvis and they hadn't That's seen right. that before um and so and then what they do over top of that is he actually added in like a very heavy more rock and roll that we know kind of guitar over top of that scene so what i, I was like oh, okay so this is more what that would have sounded like to a bunch mm, of mm -hmm. teenagers who hadn't heard it before at the time. So, yeah, it was very cool. But, yeah, it started started with that and then his kind of Damn, to the radio and that kind of thing. But, yep, bang on. Great. So, three for three. Yep. Next one we got here is uh, a jump to scenes of playing in front of adoring fans. The scene where they record their first song and win over a cynical producer. And a moment that that song becomes a hit and then they go on tour. Did that general also same thing what happened was colonel tom parker was at that first performance where he saw elvis and he was like oh my god i need to i need to get this guy and like only me like no one else can have him and same thing so he gets him to record the song that like was particularly popular and then he takes them on a mini tour all around the south of the u.s uh, where all of a sudden, again, all the women are screaming at him and throwing underwear wow. on the stage and, and everything else. Wow. So, yeah, also bang on. Very cool. Yeah, great. Okay, and it talks about sort of a montage section in this part of the movie as well. Sort of touring, becoming successful, womanizing, all that sort of stuff. Yep. Seems like that's all. Yep, there was lots wow. of... Wow, okay. You know, he had a girlfriend back home. Not Priscilla. Priscilla comes later. But he had a girlfriend back home. But sure enough, you know, he was every night hmm. in the hotel room. Kind of lonely, mm. a lot of a lot of ladies around. So, yep. All right, and okay, so four for four. Number five is sort of the innovation period, the time where uh, where the the artists are starting to innovate and push their music forward, and it's also often paired with scenes with them starting to take drugs, and this would lead to scenes where there are like more montages, marriages are strained because of cheating and drug use and all that sort of stuff as they're sort of being swept up by the world. Pretty much, yeah. Elvis was cool because it first kind of really celebrates, okay, how, you know, how innovative at the time it was. Patrick, mm -hmm. I would love to hear your opinions on this because I thought it was interesting in the film. Obviously, Elvis capitalized on black music mm -hmm. and black performers and adopted yeah. their style and made it his own. And because he was white, it was more... A appropriate or accepted by the mainstream to listen to him rather than actual black artists and there are yeah. like he was actually really good friends with bb king who is like a person in the movie and like all the black people in the movie seem to genuinely love elvis and his music and maybe they did at the time maybe like it was more like our music's getting out there like this guy's doing really cool things with it 
but there wasn't a whole lot of repercussions. It was just kind of like, oh, he was so innovative and like, yeah, that's awesome. Go Elvis. Um, so I thought that was very interesting, but yeah, so that happens. And then there's the moral kind of clap back that happens where, uh, people are threatening to arrest him. They didn't show it, but historically, uh, in one of the Southern states, they burned an effigy of Elvis because they thought that he was corrupting young people with sex and all this other stuff because he was gyrating on stage. And that especially was like skyrocketed when he was on TV for the first time. So Mm. that happens. And then they kind of pull him back a bit and they're like, you need to behave. You need, you can't move on stage. And he rebels and is like, screw you. My fans, they were all like, we want the old Elvis back. So he ends up saying, screw you. And almost gets arrested for performing on stage and everyone's going crazy. And then we kind of get more into the innovative part of his career about the fact that like he was one of the first musicians Mm. to start selling merchandise at shows Thanks to Colonel Tom Parker. Uh, He bought Graceland when he was only 21 years old. It was like his first major purchase. So we see that. Um, And just a growing kind of fame. And then it comes back as well because then they send him off to the military. Uh, And then he comes back and then he's a big major, you know, motion picture star. He marries Priscilla. And then from that, from there is when, okay, things are starting to get to him. Doctors are mm. sedating him uh, and he's starting to take a lot of pills and then things are going wrong. So it really kind of teases you for a bit. It pulls you, it, he kind of goes sure. back and then he comes back, you know, kind of, the, a lot of the message was like being, being yourself as Elvis. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. absolutely. Yeah. I, I want to deviate for a quick second because just to touch on, on, on the race subject, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I think it's it, 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 like, if it were historically a black man doing that, then they were like, that would be tied up entirely with sort of like the myth of the black male rapist and all that sort of stuff. And like it, that, his, his race was obviously a huge privilege in that sense, in terms of like, people didn't like that he was <laughs> gyrating and all that sort of stuff and advertising sort of uh, uh, open sexuality in that way. But at least he was white in that, like, you know what I mean? Like that would, that yeah. would have been the, the sort of, mindset of these people of like oh like he's like why is one of us deviating like that like why like that the the really like icky white supremacist mindset that was definitely involved in that that's, yeah that's super interesting and it was i like i can see how it was innovative at the time even like he wasn't mm-hmm. doing racial segregation at shows and mm, cool. he was very involved growing up he actually grew up his father went to jail when he was quite young that was his tragedy that happened mm, early on okay. so he was just there with his mom he had a weird relationship with his mom his entire life big mommy's boy um but i mean like there's nothing wrong with that uh but yeah and um so he they actually the only housing that they could afford was in a you know black part of a neighborhood because of course that was the lower income housing available at the time and so he grew up listening to blues and jazz and also in revivalist uh black revivalist churches where both of those are like huge influences on his sound and so he almost seems like he is more himself like that's something they do throughout the movie is that he's more himself around black people as opposed to white people Um, which is interesting but then there was one scene where they made a note of like they weren't gonna let him like they enforced that the show would be segregated 
and they show them putting up the lot like the rope that was and you know whites oh only <laughs> and then the and you're like okay cool and then he starts the show and again all the women are going crazy but i'm not actually seeing that divide line i didn't see a single right. person of color in that whole like we're all going crazy for elvis montage even though like we we saw they were black people there so i don't i don't know what that was about i was like why are you making a point about segregation being bad and then like you're also now all of a sudden it's just white people at this concert? I don't know. It was mm-hmm. it was strange. So he it was the way that they did it was interesting, you know. They could have done a worse job. Could have sure. could have maybe <laughs> been uh, put a little bit more skepticism on him, but you know. Anyway. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. All right, cool. Okay, so there are three little parts left in this little formula. The first of which is known as the dark period. This is the time where the artist alienates all those close to them. They are rarely sober and they usually eventually go into rehab or something like that. Did that happen? Yep. Great. Absolutely. <laughs> Next one is uh, the, 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 the classic sort of cleanup. They clean up their act. They, they, they get back to doing music. They play an amazing concert. And most specifically, I'm curious if this happens. It ends on a freeze frame. That's what that's what Willem says. The whole like didn't the movie end on a, freeze, ends on a freeze, frame. freeze frame. Yeah, like the last shot is a freeze frame. It didn't. Okay, well, first of all, like if you're getting this far, like obviously spoilers. I don't want to like spoil spoil things. Sure. The end. <laughs> so the end of the movie, which I thought was interesting, is so okay. A little bit of Elvis history, which I won't to go too long, but uh, so Elvis, he went through several kind of phases in his life. He was the early '50s heartthrob rock rock star not really the rock that we think of today then he went to the went to the army and became kind of a good all-american boy and when he came back from the army he was in a lot of major motion pictures and was doing the acting scene and was quite good at it until those movies started to get cheesy and like run out and then he started um doing tv uh shows and things like that like he had his own specials um And then that kind of fizzled out for a while, too. And touring was never his thing. He toured throughout the U.S. and he did three shows in Canada. But Colonel Tom Parker, and they do talk about this in the film, he was actually an alien, an illegal alien, who came over from Holland. And Tom Hanks, who plays him, has this delightful accent. It's so funny. Ooh, that's funny. Yeah, it's hilarious. He's, like, unrecognizable, too. They have him in a fat suit and, like, facial prosthetics. (laughs) Like, it's great. But so, yeah, so he was terrified that if they traveled overseas and people were offering millions of dollars to get him to play in Japan and in Europe uh, and he was too scared to leave the country. So he and he, his uh, manager also had a massive gambling problem and was so indebted to one of the new casinos on the Las Vegas Strip that he said to them, if I get you Elvis to do a residency here, like, will you like forgive me of all my debts because i can't pay it back and they said sure and he without elvis's consent signed him for five consecutive years of playing in vegas and that's where we get the rhinestone cape like that's where we get the classic vegas elvis and he was just a shell of a human because he was doing the same show every single night and he basically would do a show late until the night uh, he had his doctor, Dr. Nick, who would sedate him, let him sleep. He had pills to wake wow. him up, to go to sleep, to whatever. 
eventually Priscilla left him because she's like, I can't do this anymore. And then he started to turn to food as well. Food was Mm -hmm. a huge part in his life. It was $500 a week in the 1970s, by the way. Wow. That was the grocery list that he needed to have every single week. And it was like bottles of Pepsi, homemade banana pudding. uh, Oh, God, like he always every single night for dinner he had two fried peanut butter and banana sandwiches which is like the classic elvis thing to do wow but like brownies cookies like at, like he there are some records that state that he ate 12,000 yeah. calories that's a nuts day and what and what led to him dying is obviously he became very grotesque he weighed over 300 pounds and his heart was in horrible condition cuz he was addicted to opioids And what happens when you're addicted to opioids is that you get very constipated. So when you're eating 12,000 calories a day, but you're also addicted to opioids, you can't poop. And so the reason why he died on the toilet is because he was straining so hard that he had a heart attack and he died. And when they did the autopsy, when they did the autopsy on his body... They mm. concluded that he hadn't pooped for three months. <laughs> oh my god. And he just kept eating that many... None of that mentioned in the movie whatsoever. No, they me- They briefly mentioned that, like, oh, he's tormented and his waistline is growing. But, like, Austin Butler, who's playing <laughs> Elvis, is oh not, not... He's, like, a tiny bit chunky. Like, a tiny bit. Holy you barely see it. So the end of the movie yeah. is, like, they talk about that... And he gets on, he gets on the plane and like does like, he's like leaving to go somewhere, gets on the plane, does his little Elvis smile to the press. And it kind of is like a freeze frame moment of like, he disappears into the plane. There you go. And then you have the, (laughs) you have the title cards of in 1977, Elvis died, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And that was it. That is the the last, the last thing I was going to say, the final one. And if we get this, we get everything on his checklist in order is that there are text boxes afterwards talking about what happened with the artists and their legacy and all that sort of stuff. Yep. So there you go. So this, this new movie, and I think that was a kind of a fun way to sort of go about a nice summary of the movie as well to sort of get us a little familiar with it, but a bit fun, more, more of a fun way, I suppose. But this, so this movie hit. I think every eight single out of one. Eight. Yeah. Eight out of eight. Yeah. Which to is a which is pretty pretty good. That's pretty good of of, uh, of Patrick. <laughs> so okay, so to sort of bring this all together throughout the video, after he sort of goes through this formulaic checklist, which I think you can can somewhat prescribe to other biopic movies as well, what he's about to talk about is the idea that that he says the problem with the biopic formula is that it's a summarizing of events rather than telling of a story. And this turns out to also just kind of be my opinion about, about biopics as well, where they, they, cr- they try cramming the entire life story into two hours and try to make it fit. And so the movie doesn't seem to have a point. There's shallow summaries of the person's life as opposed to like in-depth analysis and, and conversation about, about their experiences. It, it includes as many noteworthy events as possible, but the more that they put in, the less time each has to develop. So like uh, he gives examples of like one live show cuts to a sold out concert or one moment of inspiration cuts to a completely finished hit song and that sort of thing because they're trying to include so many things. He, he describes it as essentially a checklist rather than a story. So instead of focusing on one story or situation, the movie focuses on the entire life 
So instead of, uh, the, for example, with Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, the, instead of the story about like sort of the creation of one song, which is ironic because the movie is named after one song, uh, it's really about the creation of like sort of each Queen hit and, and every sort of like, if you had a checklist of all the things that Freddie Mercury did while he was alive, all of those are checked off by the end of the movie. Uh, it's more about checking boxes than telling an actual story. And so that's kind of like his big argument from the video is of, of the formula is is only he's only able to come up with this formula, not just because every movie fits into it, but because every movie biopic, especially musician biopic, is doing the same sort of thing of just sort of checking boxes of a person's life. And if you watch a movie like Lincoln or I, I'm blanking on others right now, but but any other sort of biopic Schindler's movie, List is a Schindler's classic, List. like so many. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these movies are just sort of like if you know the story of the person, you just want to see every single thing they've ever done as opposed to focusing on a story about a thing. And so given this video my, uh, that, that, that I've, I've watched and, and sort of relayed to you all, the thing I want to sort of talk about for the rest of this episode is just some questions that I have about how we can relate it to public history. So like how, how does it relate to public history and the depiction of historical figures and events in cinema? Where's the balance between art and storytelling and history and facts? Are they always separate? Um, obviously being truthful and accurate about the history is important, but does that mean we have to share all the truthful and accurate history from their entire lives or careers? Or can we just focus on a few? Is there a way to pair the art of storytelling with the biopic in more interesting ways? So what do we all, what do we all think about? Like those, those just the sort of general questions that I'm thinking about. Well, so. I mean, I kind of think public history is that beautiful intersection between history and being there for the public so that fan service of checking all those boxes that's kind of part of the deal because we're trying to make like we've mentioned from our first episode history is supposed to be fun accessible and just like a point for you to just jump into it and find your own avenues so mm. I, I was watching someone else who was discussing um, biopics and specifically mu music biopics too and they were saying like yeah it's there's an uptick in them but it could also be related to the fact that we love reality tv we love having like snippets of people's lives and just feeling connected to it, especially with like these older historical figures who we couldn't just keep up with on social media. These aren't just facts that we would know right away. They was, these would be things that we would find out through watching hundreds of interviews. So I don't know. I think it's a it's a balancing game because there's no way people just sit down and read a biography. I'm just thinking like imagine like going to Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man, or one of these more recent ones, and not watching them perform at live aid or something or, or not like imagine going to it being like i'm gonna go see a movie about queen and then i don't see queen do the queen thing or whatever you know especially when they're they're banking on nostalgia right totally so right they totally have to so meet you at the nostalgia every point of the way yeah yeah so there's definitely something to be said for having to include that sort of fan service so is there a way to maybe like focus in the story like i don't know like like this is also like just sort of my personal opinion that i i would prefer an individual story as opposed to just sort of watching the lifespan of somebody but that like a biopic by definition is kind of like an entire biography of a person's life right and so that is part of the genre but a part of it that i'm not as huge a fan of so like like, like i mean a great example i have is has anyone seen on the basis of sex it's about ruth Bader Ginsburg. i haven't i haven't seen it seen it it's 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 pretty solid and it's, it's a great example for this because, like, it does a bit of both. And so it, like, it, I, it feels like it almost gets it right for me. Where, like, the main plot of the movie is that RBG is trying to get the, uh, like, to, to, to get essentially the, I think, I think it's the Constitution or something like that. Some sort of legal document to in, uh, include, or, or rather take out sort of 
decisions, legal decisions based on sexuality or, or, or at that time, gender <laughs> is really what she's talking about. But in terms of like, we, we, we don't want women to have to suffer, particularly at the hands of the law because they're women. And that was that the movie's about her changing that law. And so the movie is not about her becoming a part of the Supreme Court, which is like what I know most about RPG is that she's a member of the Supreme Court. Or Roe v. Wade. Or Roe v. Wade as well. She was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's not, like, the movie's not about that. So it, it picks a specific thing that she did, and it focuses on that, and it becomes such a more compelling story for me. Because, at the like, it's, it's a way to marry sort of the story with the with the history because you're, you're you know, you're telling truthful historical events, but you're shaping it in a way where you have a character, because it's still a movie, so you have a character who, like, sort of goes through a story, learns a lesson, comes out better on the other side, and we cheer, and it's incredible. Uh, but at the same time, the movie also, like, for the first, like, 40 minutes almost, like, goes through her entire time as a student at Harvard, I think it is? One of the law schools, one of the big law schools in the States. And so, like, like the first big chunk of the movie has nothing to do with, like, the the main plot that's going to be happening, like, after 40 minutes in. And so, it's 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 sort of like, it's like it almost got it for me, you know what I mean? But I think that's it's a pretty good representation of a movie, of, of a biopic, where you can focus on, like, a specific event or a specific moment in a person's life. And as long as you choose the right one, like, like if you choose the, the moment from a band or something like that, or a person like Elvis, that is like the most recognizable thing they've done and just focus on that like one year or something, I think it would be more compelling in terms of a story, but that's just me. But uh, yeah, anyway. I agree. I think like another movie that probably hits on that is, I mentioned this in the chat, it's The Sound of Music. Yeah. It is a historical But it's so biography. not accurate. It's so not accurate, but I think it hits on that perfectly. It's all about creating a narrative and one that's interesting and not complicated. So they just kind of broke it broke it down. They're like, this is a story of the family becoming musical and then escaping Austria. When in reality, um, I believe the, the parents, like Maria and uh, the father, they were married 10 years before the uh, Austria was occupied. They were already into singing. She wasn't very nice. Oh, yeah, that's also a thing. They also escaped via train. My my mom, actually, when she was in Austria, they did the Sound of Music tour, and they point at the, at the mountains, and they're like, there was a Nazi crow's nest in those mountains. If they tried to... Like, go over those mountains like they did in the movie. They would have been shot. They just got on a train yeah. and left. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, like, they were into music before that. From what I understand, the family lost money during the Great Depression. And they actually picked up a career in music together to start making up for the money that was lost. So, mm. imagine that in the movie. Like, imagine we're trying to follow the story of Maria in this movie. And it's like, oh, they're already musicals. So, like, what's the point of her? Like, we're trying... The movie's shaped in a way to give you a character to love. And there's a narrative that's easy to follow, like, oh, they're going to love each other. Oh, she's giving them a passion. Oh, they're working yeah. as a family now. And then you get little snippets of uh, the beginnings of World War II. But it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a fun, I find it's that balance of history and uh, and entertainment. Yeah, it's definitely, I, f- I feel like in terms of history, like, it's interesting to look at biopics and kind of think about, like, thinking historically or, like, historiography and how, like, Elvis was a great example of that, how because we're so focused on, like, the narrative and, like, the timeline that you miss things like how did African-American people feel about his music and, like, you know, him as a community and even, like, Priscilla, like, Priscilla is just kind of 
his wife who leaves him but they don't really talk about the fact that he was apparently not like abusive towards her but uh she wasn't allowed to not wear makeup in front of him not have her hair done like he was very particular um, you know, in it actually, she did a, a video with Vogue recently, I think, um, going through some of her most famous looks throughout time, which was cool. And she talks about like, like I, he wanted us to look nice for each other, you know, kind of thing. But you're like, oh, that's not good. But you miss that, and because we're too focused on the timeline, and mm -hmm. when we're focusing on the timeline, we're looking at it from like our own kind of point of view of like this is it's like a history book or whatever else, right? And we don't actually get to, like, be immersed in that time and, like, think about... Like, Elvis did a somewhat good job, like, for example, incorporating more of the heavier rock and roll so you can feel what listening to Elvis would have sounded like to someone in the 50s as opposed to now when it's, like, super fluffy sounding. But, yeah, when you're too focused about, like, the objective rather than, like, a subjective point of view, I feel like you miss yeah. um, a, a different level of history where you're not just watching his like the narrative that you know on the screen but like actually being immersed like in the period or in that person's life uh at that time i also i think that history movies in general but particularly biopics are more in the realm of heritage than history often sort of a bit more in the sort of like celebrating the person like we can show him as like a sad boy who wasn't very nice to his wife sometimes and like ate a bit too much and stuff and like was like a tortured artist but like in enough of a way where the audience can still sympathize with the with the person and still like think elvis is great and all this sort of stuff and so it but it, it like you like you know when you're watching a movie you kind of want to root for the protagonist sure but like they definitely play it very safe in those moments in terms of not trying to push it all too far in terms of certain things that people did because it's often and and if you look at the like this is something with Bohemian Rhapsody, I know for sure, but, like, if you look at the people who produced the movie, it is often, like, their estate or themselves, or in the case of Bohemian Rhapsody, other members of Queen that were producing or involved in the production, and so their images are definitely going to be, uh, even if they try not to, like, to do it consciously, like, there will be a particular amount of bias there in terms of, like, trying to show it in a more positive, celebratory way. That sort I of thing. mean, imagine the resale if you come out of the movie being like, wow, that made me feel terrible and I don't want to see that again. Right? Because <laughs> like, that's that's whole part of the investment, especially with the music and stuff is now I want to go listen to Elvis. Now I want to go buy a T-shirt with, you know, about Bohemian Rhapsody. Like it like it really is like the the stuff that it does for people's legacies is really cool. But it also sucks because. Like, Elvis and Bohemian Rhapsody as well, like, talk about how fame changes you, and oftentimes not for the better, and, like, how being so famous, like, often killed a lot of these people, especially the people who have, like, died a long time ago, and now we're finally doing a biopic, and it's, so it's really problematic to be, like, I don't know, it's just weird to be, like, you need to make it for the fans because those are the people who are going to want to see it. But at the same time, you're like doing this weird morbid thing of like the fans are kind of, we're both positive and negative to this sort of person. ironic, right? It's, yeah. yeah, it's super ironic. I felt that with, with Elvis. I was just kind of like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm still sad because I feel like all they're doing is just telling his story again and more people who aren't him are profiting off of it while he doesn't look good or, you know, whatever, like, so yeah, I don't know. That was the only thing where it's just like, oh, the story is repeating itself where his manager 
denied him a lot of opportunities and like totally profited off of all of his fame and like it's just happening all over again so yeah right and 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 so like and if they were trying to make it a bit more of like an artistic movie or like a bit or, or more of like a storytelling situation rather than just sort of like talking about his life or showing his life in a movie maybe that would sort of hit better like maybe they could actually like sort of play up those themes of like like of the idea of because it always feels just so superficial to me like it's it's like yeah okay the art the 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 artist is tortured and they're often manipulated by by people who already know how the system works and that sort of thing and how fame works and and how they sort of like leech off these these people who are who are just in it for the art and then sort of don't know what's what they're what they're about to get into or whatever but it, it seems like i think rocket man has come closest for me because of how they the sort of like artistic way they Im, imbue the music in the movie as well but um i think it's it's pretty common for these movies to just at least for me just feel a little superficial in that story that like if they tried to focus like again there, it just feels like they're focusing on so much like if they just tried to make a story about this artist who you know, like wanted to make some really cool music and then got sort of abused and manipulated by the system and stuff. And, it, and talk about that in a real way. I think that could be really powerful and, and impactful. And, but this way, like you're saying, it just sort of feels like I, I saw it and now people are making money for a bit. Like what, like it just doesn't feel like it matters enough. Right. It, it doesn't feel like it's enough at the forefront. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or everyone's just obsessing at how hot Austin Butler is, which I mean, the resemblance is uncanny. Yeah, these like the last couple, especially even like I mean, I'm trying to remember the movies about James Brown and Chadwick Boseman was James Brown. He looked really good, and I think this was Get On Up. I think is what it was called. But Chadwick Boseman played him. It was very good. Nice. Uh, But yeah, like yeah, the 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 casting for these movies is often very good. Ray, that's a really good one about um, Ray Charles. Yeah, that got me real good. There's Mm -hmm. yeah, there's lots of good ones. I think I think a, a conversation about historical accuracy and inaccuracy is something that we should probably dedicate its own episode to because yeah. there's a, a lot a lot there. <laughs> I mean, it's super distracting if you can tell the actor doesn't look a thing at all yeah. like the, the, <laughs> the historical yeah. character. Absolutely, but you can like, get away with it with like you know those uh, period dramas where all you have is a painting. I think that's pretty loose. But when you yeah. have an actual photograph of, let's say Freddie Mercury. Uh, that mm-hmm. they did pretty good on that but like i i've heard people say that um uh, elton john like the actor that played him sometimes oh, yeah. it took him out of it yeah, really i think they look so it. similar i thought they looked very similar oh Especially i love that elton actor john. oh I do yeah love him too he's great he kills taren it edgerton? taren edgerton edgerton i think edgerton he's welsh yeah he's pretty cool sometimes yeah. people get really caught up in that <laughs> Well, Katie, maybe you can answer this question that I have, because because my my question my thought is like, if we can just set aside historical accuracy for a minute, because that sort of ruins this question I have entirely. If we if we go down that rabbit hole, um, like let's say they get most of the things right and it's fine. Like, how do you think you could pair a story about a real person? Because real life is not neat and tidy and satisfying like a story is you know what i mean so like how how do you how would you like to pair the two what, what do you what do you think i feel like i am not the person to answer this question if it hasn't become clear i've seen none of these movies and i have no interest in seeing any of these movies <laughs> okay well, okay well, well why why i'd love to that would be really helpful why you... uh, i just don't watch biopics i i actually realized <laughs> when you were talking that i have seen one Oh. It's called Nowhere Boy, and it's about the Beatles. 
Oh, okay. yes, yes, yes. Uh, but that's it. And I think I watched right. that because my parents made me watch it. It's just a weird thing about me. I'm really bad at watching movies. I've watched like two movies this whole year. And one of them was wow. a Marvel movie, so it doesn't even count. All right. <laughs> yeah. So never mind, I guess. You really aren't the best person. <laughs> really not the person to answer this question. I'm just nodding along. Oh yeah, well, hey. I love it, though. Too. I feel like I'm learning about Elvis. I'm still shook at how he died, though. Jeez. Oh, yeah, I know. And that was not in the movie at all. I mean, I'm kind of glad it wasn't in the movie, though. Yeah. Again, because you want to, like, that. that's because I was almost, not, like, excited, but I was, like, it'd be really interesting to see kind of the progression of, like, how he was, like, this fresh face, like, super attractive, like, sex symbol into this kind of grotesque version of himself. And you didn't really get that, you know? But I, I think out of respect it makes sense, because obviously no one would be like, and then he was fat and sad. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's not cool, but... I think you made a great point earlier, though, by mentioning, like, there's people with vested interests in these movies. If it was anyone else, they would have just been like, here's the truth. Like, this is it. But that's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is that, like, it, like, like if we want to talk about Elvis and race, if we want to talk about, like, sort of the, the clear depression and mental health concerns that was going on with him, like, as he was, you know, getting closer to death, like like serious things that were going on uh that that we think are important to talk about if we wanted to do that we could but it would just be a very different movie because it wouldn't just be a checklist of the greatest hits of his life it would be like like that's what I, that's what I, that's what i keep trying to come back to i guess i don't know i just like I, I wonder if there's a way to do both or to include that more or if it's just the idea that like we're historians and so we or not even historians like we're 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 critical thinkers and so we want to get something more out of a movie than just watching someone be awesome you know what i mean well i definitely think um we mentioned it when we were like brainstorming ideas but uh there's a new marilyn monroe movie coming out with anna de Armas. it's called blonde and that one i think will be interesting maybe we'll have to revisit when it comes out because it seems that they are going to be going into a lot more of the really kind of horrific details of marilyn's life and going beyond the sex symbol kind of story that we've all been sold about her I find it interesting the movie is rated nc-17 so that's like more than pg-4 like yeah like it's very a very high rating uh, and so like what is going to be in this movie about marilyn monroe like, you think about other movies about marilyn monroe even though her like even like kind of the tragedy of her life is often very sexualized and romanticized i don't know if this will be that and i think that'll be really interesting um like a different perspective on her and we'll see if they do a good job like if it makes sense um and i also think too that it is also taking part over a short period of time when like she was filming something but i could be mistaken um something to be hopeful gentlemen for. for blondes oh i love that movie it might have been that um but yeah so, so watch the trailer if you haven't watched the trailer yet or i think it's like a teaser but mm -hmm. she also again like dead ringer like i never would have thought anna de Armas for marilyn monroe but like wow she yeah mm -hmm. nailed it so. i think i really loved that movie too when i was a kid because that was one of them where she wasn't just someone to be pined after i if mm. i remember correctly they portrayed her as like a smart woman like messing with these dudes throughout yeah. the whole movie yeah like weaponizing her sexuality yeah yeah that's cool there were some other ones where she was just like the sister in the dits and it was just like oh okay but this one she was really taking a more uh, 
aggressive. I'm going to call it aggressive. Aggressive yeah. role. I really liked yeah. it. She had agency. She had. She was her own person. She was doing. How to Marry a Millionaire is my favorite Marilyn Monroe film because that one she is particularly like her and a couple others, um, uh, and they're like kind of broke girls living in New York, and their goal is to like each find a like a very wealthy man and marry them, and. Marilyn Monroe wears glasses and she's so funny because she's like, I can't wear my glasses around men because <laughs> they're going to think that, you know, whatever. So she like stumbles into things, but they are also like the, the way that they, that again, they go about using, like using, you know, their sexuality for financial gain. It's, it's, they do a good job in that one. They're a lot more like conniving. <laughs> in that yeah, one. See, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a question, Liz. Yeah. In terms of Elvis. Because one scene that i've heard of from the movie and i just want to know how it actually played in the movie because it sounded really cool is that like during it was like a, a, a spliced up scene where part of the scene was elvis i think he was playing at like a big concert or something and the other part was the assassination of martin luther king yes and i wanted to hear how that landed because that sounded really interesting very interesting so uh, what's cool is the the kind of commentary that they did on the change from the 50s to the 60s especially like the 60s is really marked by violence so uh i believe the so the first assassination that happened uh in the film there's actually two is martin luther king um it's at a time in elvis's life where his movie career is failing they're losing money like crazy and it's like all of a sudden so he's kind of performing uh and what happens is like a big bang right and then immediately it's kind of similar to like for our generation would be 9 11 it was something that happened where everyone was just looking at their tv screens like how could this happen and like this like just replaying it over and over again uh and so elvis is clearly upset about it i wish they kind of delved a little bit more into it and that again was one of those instances where like he very much felt like identified uh, as a member of the black community because he was raised in a predominantly black community but at the same time like obviously he's white and like that's very problematic so they did a really good job about that unfortunately what they what they did instead there was a better the second assassination was bobby kennedy and the assassination of bobby kennedy happens as he is filming this super super iconic television special that he did uh, and at the end of the special, he, they decided, you know, like there's so much awful stuff going on in the world and I want to write a song about it. And so they, he like films and records his song, If I Can Dream for the first time, uh, based off of the, you know, assassination of Bobby Kennedy. So anyway, again, they did the same thing of like, you hear a big bang while they're doing this like big show and all of a sudden the world kind of stops and he has to keep going. So it was interesting. Um, That's cool. Yeah. I heard people talking about it like Twitter. Like, is it like if you scroll on Twitter, you see something really sad and they see something really funny. It's just weird dissonance where like both are happening at the same time. Exactly. We're like, and that was, a, I think, a point in his career, like that change with the Bobby Kennedy thing of like, he, and that, that happened throughout his career was don't be political, just be a performer, just be there to entertain which was happening with, you know, when, you know, people were pressing for segregation at his shows, wanting him to not dance on stage because of how immoral it was. And so he was always juggling between like, 
I want to do it my way. I want to at least speak up about these things. That's what I would do in my real life. But I can't because I'm a performer. And then eventually with the Body Kennedy assassination, he decides I'm, I can do both. I can be political and make a statement and use my platform for good as well as entertain people. So, yeah. That's really neat. That's cool. I wish, yeah, because I love those sorts of moments. Like when they get artistic with it and they actually make a, give a, give a point to it. That sounds really cool. It was neat too when they, they broke down, uh, I believe it was his first major single, like big hit was, uh, that's all right, mama. Uh, and that was a, I forget the, the name of the blues artist who, so they, they spliced that throughout the movie of there's a really slowed down rhythm and blues style sung by a black artist in the thirties. And you see little Elvis like looking through a, a little hole and he's like looking at the guy playing that song. And then you see him in the big revivalist tent in the middle of town with again, it's like all, all, um, all black people in the community. And then there's this like skinny white boy and he's doing the same kind of movements that he does on stage, right? That classic revivalist hands up and you're like, in the throes of it you know worshiping whatever else and then yeah, there's a scene where he kind of like passes out like you know like he's just like as a kid just too much um and so kind of and then like they do that on top of his recording of that's all right um and so it was, yeah it was super interesting how they were actually showing like this is where his music kind of come came from and they did talk about big mama thornton and she was the originator of hound dog uh they made it seem like she just was like okay with him doing that song there were a lot of different uh scenes with black artists where he was like i like what that guy's doing i'm gonna do it <laughs> like there was one scene where he's watching this young black artist like performing in a jazz club and he's like oh my god look how he's moving like i want to try that i want to do those moves and you're just like mm, oh boy don't do a, that a true colorblind man yeah <laughs> Like, it's so weird. Like, I, his entire career, he was just like, Yikes. I like that. I'm going to do that. <laughs> just going to take that away from you. Yeah. going to take that away from you. This is great. I love this for me. Yeah. This is wonderful. Like, okay. <laughs> oh, my God. That's funny. Yeah. If I have a question for the three of you, if that's all right. Of course. Um, it, would, it would be, do, and I think, Katie, I think this is one where you might actually be able to help. <laughs> answer the question um do you do you think because this is a question i've thought of so often i don't have a right answer to it or i don't think there is a right answer but do you think it is the responsibility of the filmmaker to make a movie about history historically accurate do you think that they as artists have any responsibility in 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 making it accurate or or are they just doing it because like they're getting, they're worried about people just getting upset that it isn't historical accurate? Like, would you be interested in watching a movie about a historical event that's like totally false but artistically crazy and has some weird sort of like truthful through line through it? Like, what do you think? Is it art or is it history? Like, like, like you know what I mean? Robert Eggers, who's one of my favorite film directors, is probably a really good example of this. He did The Witch, The Lighthouse, more recently The Northman, which was Northman was a lot more like very like standard Hollywood. But The Lighthouse is one that I particularly love. The Witch is good, too. The Lighthouse is interesting because he he used a primary source material, which were these diaries and journal entries from these two lighthouse keepers on an island in, like, the middle of nowhere in the Atlantic somewhere uh, in the 1800s, like the 1890s. 
uh, and kind of like this crazy storm that happens and like they got kind of go crazy. Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe were in it. It's awesome. I showed it to my parents and they're like, what the fuck is this? Like, I'm still not allowed to do movie night picks anymore because it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of weird. But it's kind of fucked up. It's, it's kind of <laughs> fucked up. And but that is the one thing that they did such a good job of like take a primary source material and like even like mm. the way that they, they're speaking, it's in black and white film the way that they're speaking is very it's like the same dialect that like 1890s like lower class men would speak in Willem Dafoe's like why'd you spill your beans like anyway it's very iconic <laughs> so I would give anything for Willem Dafoe to say why do you spill your honestly beans? again watch the lighthouse like it's a little creepy it's a little creepy it's a little weird that's so funny but it, yeah it's also very funny it's and so, yeah, that, that was a, he does, and he did that with The Witch, too, where, again, he took a primary source material, he had his characters speaking in Old English like they would in the colonies. And so I think you can, like, use history to make art in a really cool way, especially if you're focusing in on the period. And, like, if the period is accurate and that kind of thing, I think that's cool. And then you could kind of do whatever you want within that, that era, that, that sphere. That would be really cool, because... I, I so I I like that more than like trying to get every single detail right and then like it isn't really like artistic expression you know what I mean uh, yeah a, a historic movie that had like zero accuracy to me like could be f- funny it would have to be very self aware and again like if it didn't have accuracy but it was of the period like the the great that TV show with um, Elle Fanning which is about Catherine the Great but again is like very very inaccurate but like hilarious again that's something where like the period is right the costumes are right the content isn't great like historically wise but it's entertaining so i think you can i think you just need a balance of like parts of it can be accurate but you know like the story doesn't have to be accurate i guess that was my tangent watch the lighthouse and then tell me what you think because it might be weird but watch it (laughs) i will not be doing that thank you yeah, Katie watches um, two movies a year, and she's already done it. That'd, that'd so. be wasted. Yeah, and that <laughs> I'm not wasting it on that. Um, I would agree with you. I think it kind of matters, like, what the content of the movie is. The more mm. modern we get, the more it matters how historically accurate, I think. Because people, like, like especially if you have people who are still living from that period and that, but... I mean, I'm a historian, so I care. But then I say that, and I, like, love Bridgerton. So, like, how can I say that, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And it's like, I love Band of Brothers. And, yeah, okay, there's parts of it that are accurate. But then they they made up a whole episode. Like, they just made up an episode. You're like, what? Who? Yeah, my answer is, I don't know. And uh, That's my answer, too. You know? Yeah. My answer is, heck, no. I think the director can do what they want. It's a movie. (gasps) It's meant to entertain. If it was a documentary, I think I'd care more. Right, because then then, then a documentary's purpose is to, like... Yeah, that's the point. But, like, I feel the same way. The first things that came to my head was, like, Band of Brothers, or uh, I think it's 1918, that movie. Yeah. Fantastic. Amazing. Is it accurate? I I don't think so. What about the movie Passchendaele? Yeah. Oh, my God. The movie we all watched in grade 10. Like, they're so entertaining. Or Cinderella Man. I've watched that movie so many times. Oh, my God. I was thinking about Cinderella Man. So good. Is it completely accurate? No. Shakespeare in yeah, Love. Yeah, Shakespeare in Love. We love A Knight's Tale. 
we did a movie night with that <laughs> but yeah and again shakespeare love like took a source material of like actual like an actual shakespeare play did it in the time bunch of references had fun with it and like just did a random thing and like that was awesome like yeah 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 and i guess this question really comes from the sort of like the people i hear who are nitpicking the hell out of history movies for the little details they don't get right or whatever and my thought is like 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 the authority that some of these people have like it's fine to like find historical accuracies and be like i would prefer if it was more accurate like that's an opinion and that's fine but the people who who present those opinions in a way of like authority or necessity or in like a way where they're like these things are historically inaccurate and that means this movie is terrible and everyone should agree with me like those sorts of takes i always get frustrated by because i think well like it's a movie first and so like it if you want historically accurate, go read a textbook. Oh yeah, have like, fun. Yeah, like they don't, they don't, like because that's the thing is that it's an artistic interpretation of, uh, or a documentary would be like a, a way to do film in terms of like what Robin was saying, right? So, I, I think it's wasted to like look at a movie and be like, oh, they wouldn't have that kind of fabric back then, or they wouldn't be doing this back then. Like, who cares? I agree yeah, with what we were yeah. saying earlier, where when movies are trying to be historical but also trying to make a story, maybe they take that as an opportunity to turn back on history and try and critique different things like we were saying with like how Elvis was just pretty much ripping off black culture. Maybe we could have just done something a little more with that, touched on it in a different way instead of just doing fan service. And even like by kind of sticking too closely to the it has to be accurate, like in a very legitimate way, like that can be, that can also be very harmful for like film today uh, and representation today like Bridgerton does a great example of like the kind of I don't want to say colorblind approach but like the color of your skin doesn't really matter like it's not historically you know for some people it would be not historically accurate because everyone who would be of that class in that period would be white but like it doesn't really matter because it's 2022 and people of all races colors abilities whatever like should be represented like we should all be able to see regardless of what we're watching everyone who looks like you you should be able to see that yeah. so i think as long like it can be harmful when you're like it has to be of the period but like it's we're not living in that period so like why and like if we're doing that are we taking the time to talk about historical significance and why we're or not even significance but just like looking back and saying hey this is historical perspective. This is why we're doing it. Like, you can't, some things you can't portray accurately and just be like, but that's the way it is. Like, that's, they'd be pretty messed up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's terrible. <laughs> exactly. And well, I mean, like, I love the Bridgerton example because I haven't really seen much. I've seen like four or five episodes or something of the show. But like, so I, I can't really speak to that. We're going to get well, into some spicy like... stuff soon. I'm pretty sure that episode's coming okay. up. Okay. <laughs> Episode oh, six comes and you're I, like, oh, I, 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 the most, the most recent episode I saw, they just had. Sex oh, that's the one. Episode. Oh, so you got there. That's there, the I one. I got there. Great. Okay. Happy to, happy to be a part He's of the in group. Pain every oh time. But uh, <laughs> he really is. But uh, but like so something like Hamilton, right? Is it's it's purposeful for that musical to have a like person of color cast because it's it like the, they're trying to, to say something by having it be a, a cast that is filled with people of color except for the king who is the only white person and that is also a very pointed casting choice so that, that's not colorblind because they're using race purposefully even though it might be inaccurate or whatever right and so i i don't know if i can really speak to bridgerton in the same way whether they just were like we want black people in these roles so let's put them in these roles which is like slightly colorblind and it's iffy because queen charlotte there was 
some skepticism at the time that she was quote-unquote mulatta, which is not an appropriate term anymore, but essentially that she had some um, black heritage like somewhere in her family um, because of the way that she kind of like her features, which just like was, I don't know, it was never confirmed. It was just a, a rumor at the time, but they chose in the in the show to make her a black woman, which is great. And I don't know if they did that intentionally or not, but other casting throughout the movie clearly is just unintentional or not unintentional in like that this character is black and not white, but just that like, it's more that like they're just trying to get better representation. Yeah, if I remember correctly, they glossed over it. It was like a two minute thing where they're like, yeah, we can be here today because the queen is here. Like that was it. That's like, that's how we solve yeah. racism. And you're like, that doesn't make sense. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, again, I don't know enough about the show, but because, like, because I was curious if they maybe did some sort of, like, pointed, like, these people are in power, and that's the point, is so you can subvert that and see what it means to be, like, but, yeah, none of that. Cool. No doubt. Love it. Great. Just a bunch of, just a bunch of sex. Just a bunch of sex. <laughs> for, for one Season episode. two has la- less sex. I've heard. Yeah. You think it's going to come, but it doesn't. You're like, okay. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> you it is that very more good. Than I one. loved it. But there you go. I mean, I, I think, does anyone else have anything they want to talk about? Or that was a pretty good discussion about it. We're hopeful for uh, uh, Marilyn yeah. Monroe's movie. Yeah, well, let's come back and talk about yeah. that. Go watch the trailer if you haven't. And also let us know what your favorite music biopic is, biopic is. Uh, if you hate biopics, why? If you love them, why? Any suggestions? Yeah, do you just only watch two movies a year? <laughs> <laughs> or do you watch every single one <laughs> me <laughs> yeah well welcome back to season three guys what the heck wow season three baby that was such a great discussion guys i'm really happy oh, that i was no. here for the whole time put the intern away lawrence will be recurring every i'm just kidding <laughs> can you imagine i can imagine katie anyway we're gonna stop recording now um Love ya, see ya. Yeah. See you on the flippity flop. Goodbye. Woo! Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, that was so good. You should end with that. That was great. Oh, I, I totally will. Digital Dust is recorded on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lenapawak, and Attawandaran peoples, on lands connected with the London Township and Somber Treaties of 1796 and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant Wampum. This land continues to be home to First Nations peoples, Métis people, and Inuit people, whom we recognize as the contemporary stewards of the land and waters we are on today. Digital Dust is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Edwards, Katie Gaskin, Patrick Kingen, and Robin Marshall. Sound design by Elizabeth Edwards. Audio transcription by Katie Gaskin. Our theme music is by Mattias Miller. <laughs>